I think I would add a line. Ascended, ascending. He, he loved, lived, died, buried, risen. He ascended to reign through his spirit forever. One of the things I love about Brother Jerry is that he, by being around him, I think the Lord uses him to provoke my spirit to love Jesus more. And you look for people like that. When you find people like that, you don't want to leave them. And that is just a ministering of the Holy Spirit through him. And I pray that you will have that same effect uh, and have your hearts drawn to the Lord and his word. Sometimes that comes through conviction. Sometimes that comes through reminders of the promises. Uh, Sometimes it means to simply walk in faith of what God has told you to do. And so we'll see how the Lord speaks to us. Brother Jerry, would you come now and share with us the, the word of God? Is this on? Okay. It's good to be back with you. I've gotten older since I was here. I tell the young men that I disciple, the younger men, life is shorter than you think and the race is longer than you expect. I desire to draw your attention to the Lord Jesus in these days. And your relationship with him. When I was a young man, the Lord struck my heart with a deep desire of wanting to know how to walk with God. I grew up in a traditional Baptist church, did not know at the time that it was liberal. I did not know much about liberalism or conservatism. But I had a desire when I was saved to know the truth. And that set me on a search. How does one walk with God in the fullness of his spirit that you see in the book of Acts. Later, after going to the university and then to one of our seminaries, I was called back to First Baptist Church Roanoke to serve as associate pastor to finish my third year at Southeastern Seminary. And so I did. This was way back in the last century. And I would sit in this First Baptist Church, and the pastor was a dear friend of mine. He had helped marry us, and I had served with him previously as student assistant pastor when I was in college. But I would sit in the service, and I was very aware that somehow... What we knew as a church did not match what I saw in the book of Acts.
and it did not match some things that I had read that made me aware that the Holy Spirit could be active today as he was in the book of Acts. I continued searching. And in the kindness and grace of God who promised if you seek you will find. If you ask it will be given to you. If you knock and keep on knocking it will be opened to you. In the kindness and grace of God in responding to my continuing to seek. Continuing to ask and continuing to knock. I finally came to understand. What is it that God wants from me? And so what I want to do in these few days together is to talk about what is it? What is it that God wants from you, from me, from us? In order that he might be glorified in, with, and through our lives. We live in a day, dear folks, when many, many people sit in Bible studies, but they don't make application of the truth they hear. We come to church, we hear sermons by a pastor like this pastor here who teaches the Word of God. But we go out and do nothing about it. And it makes us like the one in the book of James who looks into the Word but doesn't do it. He's like the man who looks into the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. I'm quite sure this morning when you got up and got ready to come to church, you looked in the mirror to see if you were presentable or not. Some of us just had to do the best we could. (laughs) Who said amen? (laughs) And yet that's what we do with the word of God. We sit in Bible studies, we go to retreats, we go to conferences, we hear sermons on praying. It doesn't change our praying. We hear sermons about Husbands caring for their wives, it doesn't change the way we treat our wives. We hear the word and we say amen, but we don't make those deliberate choices to obey the word. And that goes to the parable that Jesus told in the Sermon on the Mount about the one who built his house upon the sand. And the one who built his house upon the rock and the one who built his house upon the sand when the floods came down the the gully, it washed his house away. But when the floods came against the one built on the rock, the house stood. And what was the difference between the two? They both had houses and the storm came against both houses. But there was one difference and that is the one whose house was built on the rock was the one who heard the word of God And did it. And did it. That takes deliberate choice. That takes obedience. That takes dependence on the Holy Spirit. Who is the only one who can enable us. I cannot do it in my strength. Nor can you. It takes the almighty power of God. Because you see, 
We all have a self-life. We all have flesh. We all live in a world that's alluring. And we all have the devil who's got his sight set upon us. It takes the mighty power of God to do the word of God. John, the first chapter, you don't need to turn there. We've got another scripture, which I'll eventually get to about one (laughs) o'clock. But John said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is talking about the Word being Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. He says, in the beginning was the Word. He has always been in eternity past. That is incomprehensible. And it says the Word was with God. In the Greek, that means, the preposition is used, the Word was face to face with God. Meaning that the Word of God, meaning the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, was distinct from God the Creator, God the Father. They were two distinct persons and yet one, because he goes on to say, and the Word was God. Profound mystery that you and I can never comprehend with finite minds because it's infinite truth. And then verse 14 of John 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Can you imagine that? This eternal Son of God who was face to face with God the Father and was actually God Himself. This eternal Son of God who was invisible, Infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-powerful, all-wise. This eternal Son of God became flesh. Flesh. Like you and me. Dr. J.I. Packer is one of the greatest theologians in the world. And Dr. Packer says the Incarnation is the greatest miracle, not the resurrection. That the eternal Son of God actually became a human being like us. It's something hard for us to grasp. But I've done a whole study on this. In fact, next week I'll be teaching this at a Bible school in Greenville, South Carolina about Jesus of Nazareth, a man. You see, there was no doubt in the minds of these New Testament believers and disciples that Jesus Christ was a man. There was no doubt about it. It took Simon Peter almost two years to recognize this man I walk with is actually Christ of God. 
He was always referred to as man. And Jesus himself said the son of man. You see, he chose to live as a human being. Was he divine? Of course he was divine. But you see, what he chose to do was to deny the use of his divinity in order that he might live exactly like you and I have to live. For 30 years, he worked after he got grown enough. He worked in the carpenter shop. He was known as the carpenter of Nazareth. He was a carpenter, worked with his hands, took care of his mother, who was probably widowed according to scholars, and his half-brothers and sisters, because they were born of Joseph, he was born of God. And stayed at home until he was 30 years of age. And the folks in Nazareth never knew who he was. They did not know when they came to say, uh, Jesus, would you fix this yoke? Would you fix this chair? They never knew they were dealing with the Messiah of God, the very Christ of God. Nobody knew who he was. He was ordinary looking. The early church father said he was unbecoming. He was unattractive. Isaiah said the same thing. He looked ordinary, living in an obscure, ordinary village that did not have the best reputation. And for 30 years, he never preached a sermon, never raised a dead man, never performed a miracle on a blind man, and never fed a multitude. For 30 years, he lived an ordinary life. He understands where you live because he lived that kind of life. The word became flesh. And did not live by his divinity, but lived as a full human being. Because he had to live like us in order to die for us. And he never sinned. Never. Thought, word, or deed. Obeyed the perfect law of God perfectly which made him a suitable sacrifice to die as a human being. Not pretending that he died, but actually dying. He gave up the eternal bliss of heaven. He was with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. He gave up the eternal bliss of heaven to come down for us. For us. To become one of us. To live among us. And then to die for us. In our stead. And he suffered. Just like you and I would have suffered. Had he been put on the cross. Except he suffered beyond that. Because the truth is. He became sin for us. And he actually bore the wrath of his father for all your sins and all my sins and the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John. 
He suffered a death so horrible we can never begin to understand it. That we might have salvation. Now there are two parts to salvation. There's God's part. There's our part. God's part is no man comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. There is the operation of the Holy Spirit that is a mystery. The last time I preached on Sunday morning in this church, I preached on John, the third chapter about new birth. New birth is a necessity. New birth is spiritual. And new birth is a mystery. There must be the operation by the Spirit of God. If God does not operate on your spirit, you will not be born again. Your decision does not make you a Christian just because you decide. There must be the transformation of your heart by the Spirit of God. But there is a part that you and I do. There is our part to cooperate. We must be converted. Now, if you look in your Bible at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Simon Peter answered the question that the Lord Jesus asked when he said, Who do men say that I am? They gave different answers. John the Baptist and others said one of the prophets or Elijah. But Peter, in verse 20, gives an answer. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Dear ones, who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? That's a critical question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? Who do you say that he is? Is he the Christ of God? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Savior of the world that God sent to die on the cross for your sins and to give you the gift of forgiveness and righteousness? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. This was almost two years into the ministry that Jesus had with Simon Peter beside him. And then Jesus begins in verse 21, he says, and he strictly charged them, commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, and he continued, the Son of Man, notice what he calls himself, the Son of Man, fully human, divine, yes, but not using divinity, living as a human being. By the very same means that you and I must live. He did not know everything. He was not omniscient as a human being. The word of God tells us in Luke in an earlier chapter that he grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. That word grew is the word that's used in the Greek that it was like the soldiers cut through to go forward. He had to grow and learn just like us. 
He didn't know everything. He had to learn the Torah. He had to learn the Word of God. He had to learn two plus two is four. He had to learn how to measure a cubit. He had to learn just like us. We don't like to think of him that way. But that's exactly the way he was. He learned according to God's Word, just like we have to learn. And now he's going to expose to them what is his experience in life. And it says there, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must suffer many things. You've suffered many things. We've suffered many things. But he was suffering at the hands of others. Rejection. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is what's going to happen to me, he was saying. This is the path that God my Father has appointed for me. This is the way that I must walk. It's inescapable. I have come to die for you and this is the path that I must walk in order for you to live. If I do not walk this path, you will not live. If I do not walk this path, there will be no sacrifice for your sins. If I do not walk this way, you will never enter the kingdom of God. This is the way that God has appointed for me to walk. And I must walk it. Rejected, despised, hated, killed, and raised from the dead. And then look what he says. Verse 23. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now he's telling us what we need to do if we're going to be that raises a question. Do you want to follow Jesus? No, no, no. It's not, do you want to be a church member? It's not, do you want to go to heaven? It's not, do you want to know that your sins are forgiven? It's not, do you want any assurance of your salvation? Dear ones, we live in a day that fulfills the scripture. Men shall gather themselves together, teachers, having itching ears. We want to hear things that make us feel good. This is not a feel-good message. He didn't say, come to me and you can have 
the best life you can imagine. He said, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, Lord, where are you going? I've just told you, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be despised. I'm going to be crucified. But oh, there's a resurrection coming and I'm going to be raised from the dead. If you want to come with me and suffer and die and be raised from the dead, this is how you do it. Do you want to follow Jesus? Have you ever noticed what God said to Ananias to tell Saul of Tarsus when he went to see him? I mean, imagine Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church who was there when Stephen died and who went to throw men and women and children into prison because of their faith in Christ. And all of a sudden on the road to Damascus, he was confronted by the resurrected Christ. And he said, Lord, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, identified himself, not as Christ. I am Jesus, the man whom you despise and hate. I am Jesus. And Saul of Tarsus was converted. He went into Damascus and an angel appeared to Ananias and said, go to Saul of Tarsus on a street called Straight and tell him. Pray for his eyesight, for it to be filled with the Spirit, and tell him what? That he's going to have a grand and glorious life? That his name's going to be known around the world? He's going to have such a reputation? He's going to be elevated to celebrity status? Tell him what? Tell him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. In Acts chapter 14, it says, they went to tell them they must suffer many things for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for my name's sake. And then he tells them how to do it. He says, first, let him deny himself. Verse 23, let him deny himself. Are you living a life of self-denial? Those of you who call yourself Christian, are you living a life of self-denial? What does it mean to deny self? I don't hear this preached much. But it's right there in the very lips of the Lord Jesus. If anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. What does that mean? It means lay down your rights. Lay down all your rights. You give the Lord Jesus the key to every closet of your life. You lay down your rights. You say, I no longer have rights. I have been ruler and king of my life. I was born wanting my way. Sin has ruled my life. Self has ruled my life. 
but I am laying down my rights right here, here and now. Lord, I take death to self. I give you all my rights and you shall reign sovereignly, supremely, unequivocally as king of my life and king of my soul. I am no longer in charge. I've been bought with a price. I want to be yours. I want to follow you. I lay down my right. And you say, Pastor, is it that serious? I'm only sharing what Jesus says. It is that serious. Because you see, dear ones, I've been in this business, I've been a Christian now 60 years. I've spoken at a lot of churches. I've dealt with a lot of folks. And I've watched the degeneration of the gospel message in our day. What we have sitting in churches often are people who, they want to go to heaven, but they want to retain their life. And so they come to church on Sunday because they want to go to heaven. They give their money. They serve in the church. They Sing in the choir, take up an offering, teach a Sunday school. They do whatever, but they want to retain rights to their life. There are things they don't want to give up. I have a doctor friend I talked with just recently. He practices in Mississippi. He has patients come in. He's learned that if you eat right, certain diseases will disappear. Arthritis, diabetes. He has patients come in and he has four sheets of paper that he'll give to them. But he'll ask them this question first. Do you want to stay on your medication or do you want to be made well? Oh, I want to get off my medication. I want to, I want to get well. Then take these papers, do exactly what they say in your eating plan. And in time, you can get off that medication. And you can be made well. He's seen these diseases disappear because they would eat right. But he said to me, he said, I have patients come in and I say to them, do you want to change your way of eating and get off this medication eventually? Or do you want just to keep on eating the way you do? Do you know what some of them answer? Oh, I'm not going to change my eating. I'll just take the medication. Do we want to belong to Jesus and know the fullness that he gives and the assurance of that eternal life in heaven? Or do we want just to hold on to our rights and try and hope we go to heaven? You cannot hold on to your rights and follow Jesus. No way. To belong to him. You deny yourself. You deny yourself to be the ruler. Determiner of your own life. You hand everything. Over. To him. Also if you want to follow Jesus. He says something else. And that is. In verse 23. 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now let's put that in context. Anyone here today have a cross on, a necklace cross, or I got a cross ring? Okay. You see, in our day, we think of a cross as something that is on the front of the church or on the steeple of a church or something around our neck. We don't have in this culture, in this generation, in this day and time, a proper understanding of the cross. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he wasn't talking about this is something that's been put upon you some bad circumstance. You have sugar diabetes or you have rheumatoid arthritis. Well, this is my cross to bear. Or you have an alcoholic husband. This is my cross to bear. No, a cross is not something that's put upon you. A cross is something you take up of your own accord. And when Jesus used this terminology, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, lay down his rights, and take up his cross and follow me. When Jesus used that terminology, you can understand that those people probably just, wow. Dear ones, Jesus wasn't putting the secret stuff in fine print. He was putting it in bold print at the top. If you want to be his, you take up a cross to die. He put it right at the top of the page. Bold print. This is what it means to follow me, to be mine, to be owned by me and receive the benefit of what I've done for you. This is what it takes. Lay down your rights, every single one of them, not one held back. Your money, your position, your prestige, your reputation. You see, God's not really concerned about your reputation as long as you walk righteously. He wasn't concerned about Mary's reputation. A single teenage girl who got pregnant in a Jewish culture? He wasn't concerned about her reputation. So you lay it all down. Your bank account. Your future. Where you go. What you do. You lay down your rights. You say, Lord, I will follow you. I'm willing to die to myself. And so when he said, take up your cross, they immediately understood what a cross was. It was a one-way ticket to death. They knew when they saw a man carry a cross, he wasn't coming back. It was estimated by one historian that when Jesus was a mere boy, he saw 5,000 men executed on crosses. They had seen crosses. There was an insurrection against the Roman government. What would they do? This massive army would take the insurrectionists captive and they would hang them on crosses going into the villages, line the roads going into the villages with men dying on crosses. As an example and a deterrent, you don't don't rebel against the Roman government. They had seen 
Wives stand there with her husband hanging on a cross in the heat of the day and in the cold of the night. And the women stood there for their husbands and would weep. And the children stand across the road and look at that cross and cry and weep. Daddy was dying on a cross. It was the most barbaric way for a man to die that has ever been devised. Designed by the Babylonians. The cross was not a pretty picture, like a piece of jewelry or a symbol. Do you know that the cross, do you know that the cross, the word cross, was never spoken in polite company? It was a four-letter word, never spoken in polite company, just like we have four-letter words. We would not speak in polite company. It was such a despised thing. They would never speak it in polite company. They would go around it with some other words. And it was 400 years before they ever discovered the first cross anywhere in a building where Christians met. It was an instrument of shame. 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 If you want to be mine, lay down your rights. And take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say this, but I wonder if he had said, Are there any takers? He says, This is what it takes to be mine. Now we bring two things together. There's God's part and there's our part. If God doesn't work in my heart, I will not be willing to do that. I must have God. And then he added another word. He said daily. Daily. Take up your cross daily. It's what you do. It's what you choose. You take up your cross daily. Which means day by day by day. You recognize and acknowledge My life is not my own. I've been bought with the price of Jesus Christ's shed blood. And I will obey him in the midst of this. Heartache, disappointment, pain, whatever. No man can crucify himself. It's impossible. Just using a visual, you can put the nail through your feet. You can put the nail through one hand, but you have one hand free that you cannot nail. Crucifixion always comes by the hands of others. Always. I tried to teach my children when they were growing up. Every 
circumstance in your life is an opportunity to trust and every relationship is an opportunity to love. God uses your circumstances and people around your life to crucify you because you're going to have pain. You're going to have resentment. I mean, you're going to be resented. You're going to have disappointment. You're going to be hurt, deeply hurt. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Think of that. The Son of Man learned to obey by what he suffered. We learn to obey by what we suffer. I had a man come by to see me one day, and he said, Brother Jerry, I've got prostate cancer. And he said, just pray for me. I want to glorify God through this whole thing. I knew he was on the right track. He glorified God through the whole thing. And the Lord graciously touched him and healed him. But his heart was set the right direction. Do you have somebody in your life that, boy, they just are on your case in the worst way? Could be a relative, neighbor, friend, co-worker. Obey God's word in that relationship. Bless them. Forgive them. Learn to obey God. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Has there been a reversal in your finances? It's an opportunity to trust God. God says, will you believe me? Will you trust me? Lord, I will do that. I don't know where the money's going to come from for our mortgage, but Lord, I will trust you in this. I will obey you. I will trust you. And dear ones, as you face difficulty after difficulty, things you have no control over from people and from circumstances, you can reckon on the fact, I have laid down my rights, I've taken up my cross, and my heavenly Father is in absolute sovereign charge of my life. He has the hairs of my head numbered. He knows every thought that crosses my mind. He's watching over my life, and I can trust him, and I will trust him. I'll not try to figure out how to handle this in my own self-life, my own flesh, my own weakness. I will trust the Lord Jesus who lives within me, just like we sing this morning. I will trust the Lord Jesus who lives within me. I will not trust to make a way for my life. I will trust him. He loves me enough. He gave his only son for me. I can trust him to take care of me now. And I will please his heart by believing him when it seems impossible. Through the difficult relationships and the difficult circumstances, we learn to obey. That's following the Lord Jesus Christ. That's learning obedience by the things which we suffer. And yes, every time I choose to forgive somebody who's hurt me deeply, it's more death to self. Every time I trust God in the difficult circumstances that I don't understand, it blesses the heart of God and I die to myself. Every time God leads me to do something that I think, I can't do that. I'm not equipped to do that. I just believe God's leading me, but I'm just not able to do that. But I trust God, and I put my foot in the Jordan River, and he dries it up so I can walk through on dry ground. 
I learned that God is reliable and it's death to self. And you see, dear ones, it's walking it out in every circumstance of life. I remember, folks, when God showed me I had not loved my wife as Christ loves the church. You think of that for a minute, men. God says to us in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's agape. Sacrifice your life for your wife, husband. And I remember I stressed out on the floor, my face down, and said, God, I don't know how to love her this way. I need you to show me how to love her this way because I don't know how. I need you to enable me because I knew in my self-life I could not do it. And God graciously, graciously, graciously began to show me this is what you do to love her like I love you. You see, it applies to every area of life. There were times when my son was a teenager and I didn't know what to do and I'd get on my face and pray, Lord, I need you to show me what to do. And invariably, he would show me something to do that I would not think of on my own. And as you obey and trust in the difficult relationships of life, in the difficult circumstances of life, in the disappointments of life, in the heartaches of life, in the grief of life, as you trust and obey his word in those ways, you are being crucified to your self-life. And he's being glorified because you see the more Death to self works in you the more the life of Christ flows from you. If anyone wants to come after me, let him lay down his rights. All of them. Get down and say, God, whatever comes to me by your hand to put self-life to death, I take up my cross and I will let it kill my self-life as I trust you and obey you. Regardless of the relationship, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the heartache and disappointment, I will obey you. And I want to tell you something. For me and for you, I have to do that daily. I meet with the Lord early, morning by morning, before daybreak. And often I say, Lord, whatever you want today, all of me, to all of you, for your glory. It has to be daily. Or otherwise, self-like crawls back up on the throne. 
and takes over your life. One last thing, and that is perhaps you're sitting here and you might say, Brother Jerry, I just, I'm just not ready for that. I'm just not ready for that. I thought it was just trusting Jesus and being baptized belonging to the church. I'm not ready for that kind of life. If you're not ready for that kind of life, you're not prepared for heaven. Because this is what Jesus said it takes. You say, what do I do? God is a merciful God. He knows our weakness. He knows where we are. And you can come and get down before God and say, God, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm not ready to do that. But I'm asking you for mercy that you will work in me that I will be ready for that. Just call on him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just call on him. You may be a Christian or professing Christian, but you recognize this is not your life. Come and say, God, I want what's real. I ask you for mercy that I can have what's real. You can come to him, Jesus. He came all the way from heaven to humanity for you. You can come to him. He's a compassionate, merciful Savior. And he will gladly work in you that you will want what he wants. Let's pray for a moment.